This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis and you're watching Tax Tuesday. This Tax Tuesday is going to be a little bit different since it's the holidays. A lot of my staff is out, but what I wanted to do is put together a recording because I'm out too and make sure that you get something for the year end. And we're just going to do rapid fire. We did this kind of last year too, where I just did a rapid fire Q&A off of questions that have come in. You can still ask questions. You can still ask questions via the Q&A feature and in chat. And we will have limited staff handling it. But you can also send in your questions to Tax Tuesday. So let's jump in. First off, yes, I am teaching Tax Tuesday. And Clint the Cat, we'll see where he ran off to. He's probably making a mess somewhere because he is pretty good at making messes anyway so we are your pilots today we're going to jump in typical rules is you could ask questions via the q a feature again i have limited staff due to the holidays and uh i'm not certain how many people are going to be on for you but you can still ask and i would say email in your questions of tax tuesday at anderson advisors if you need a detailed response you're going to need to be client and what does that mean, by the way? Some people ask that, and I'll just give you an answer. If you say something like, hey, if I have a business, can I reimburse myself for business miles? We'll respond back whether you're a client or not. Yes, you can. You can reimburse at the at the, at the mileage rate that the IRS prescribes right now. It's 62 and a half cents a mile, and you have to track your miles. You're, you're, you're responsible for keeping track of both your business and personal uses on a vehicle. If you write and say, hey, I have uh, three cars, and I use two of them in one business and another one in both businesses. And I pay the gas at a business one. And I want to reimburse certain expenses at a business two to, for, for the third vehicle. But a business with the car one and two really is being, is, is being used equally between two businesses. And I don't really like if it starts going down that path, you need to be a client. Here we go. It's supposed to be fast and fun and educational. Hopefully, we're going to give you the fast and fun and educational all in one pack. So let's go through this. Last year was the first time I wasn't able to take investment real estate depreciation or deduction due to AGI over 150. Found this hard to believe. I would think that many real estate investors go over that. As such, I've limited myself this year in wondering, almost too late, if I should pare down my gains with tax losses. Hard for me to do. I don't have too many necessary losses or even losses that I don't know or don't think will get back up but it seems a way to reduce my AGI. How do I, how do multiple unit landlords do it? I'm thinking five houses without stock could get you up over the limit. What's being described here is actually 469, which is passive loss activity rules. And there are, whenever you have rental properties, it's generally going to be passive income. Businesses in which you don't materially participate are passive. And the rule is passive losses offset passive income only. And then they're carried forward until you either get rid of the business, they get rid of the investment, or you have capital passive income to off to, to, that you can use those losses against. So this person is running up against something called active participation. So there's really two exceptions to the rental rental passive loss, and that's active participation, where you're managing the manager, and it has an AGI phase out between 100,000 and 150,000. The second one is real estate professional status, which we've talked about at nauseum on Tax Tuesdays, in which you can go to my YouTube channel and read all about, but it's a much higher threshold. 
a lot of people hit that active participation, but then they phase out. And you're absolutely right. It phases out for a reason, because once you have a bunch of houses, the IRS is trying to keep you from using your real estate losses from offsetting your other income and depriving them in their minds of income or Congress who wrote the law who says, hey, we need our money, right? So this is where you get into that phase out. And the phase out is really 100,000 to 150,000. So you've probably been phasing out. You just didn't realize it. And maybe your loss was small enough where you didn't notice it because it's up to 25,000. So maybe you got a $5,000 loss and you didn't, you made $125,000. So you could write off up to 12,500 because you're halfway through the phase out of 25,000 and you didn't even notice. So now you notice and that AGI becomes important. And so you could do certain things to lower your AGI and harvesting capital losses is one of them. Also HSAs, depending on whether you have a family or just you, it could be $3,600 if you have a high deductible health insurance plan. IRAs are another methodology for lowering AGI. If you have a side business and you have self-employment taxes, those could be used. There's certain educational expenses. If you're an educator, there's some other expenses. There's some little things, little quirks out there that lower your AGI, but those are the big ones. And yes, you got to be cognizant of it. That's why you do some tax planning. But it's a really good question and congratulations on your success. And I think that what's going to end up happening is if you have five houses, eventually you're going to start seeing those rents become a little bit annoying and you're not going to have to pay tax on the rents because you're going to have these carry forward losses. So there's going to be years where all of a sudden you start having more and more money coming in. You're not paying tax on it. Otherwise, you you can write off the loss up to that phase out of 100 to 150,000. So once you hit that 150,000, you're right. You've lost your ability to take passive losses against your wages or your other income. You still, you don't lose them. They carry forward. So, you know, if, if nothing else, at least keep that in mind. Number two, my husband and I have full-time corporate jobs, but also have small side businesses. Fantastic. Uh, remodeling, party rentals, and online sales, which is really diverse. What are the different uh, that are in different categories? How is it best to structure everything for easy accounting and tracking of funds from all of these? Thank you. So whenever, you know, general rule is you want to isolate any business that's doing business with some with somebody else, and you probably want to isolate them from each other, unless you don't really care about any of them. Like, like if it's all your effort and there's no value in those businesses, then you could actually put it in one business. Mix it up. Depends on what the revenue is as to what type of structure. If you have losses, for example, and you're just kicking down and it's offsetting your other income, you might want to be an LLC and you can even be disregarded as long as you're not making a lot of money. I'm not too worried about people being sole proprietors. Sole proprietors pay a lot more in tax on their net profit. So if they're profitable, it's pretty, it can get it can get bad. And their audit rate is significantly higher when they make money, especially if they're making up to 100000 bucks. Your audit rate literally goes like 800% higher than something like an S-Corp. So what I would say to keep your structure simple and have one set of books, just have one business. And I would have it as more than likely as an LLC and it either ignore it if it's if it's going to create losses or set it up as an S-Corp if, if sometimes it's losses, sometimes you have good years. And until one of those businesses matures, you can operate it that way. If if one of those businesses starts to take off, then we just spin it out and set up another business, another structure for it. 
and you could even have a parent structure and then you could have multiple but anyway i'm not going to get into too much detail this is one of those things where hey if it's like a three or four thousand dollar side business and each one of those is two or three thousand bucks and really what it's doing is breaking even and, and creating some losses then i'm probably going to lump it together and disregard it if it's making money I may be lumping it together and, and, and making an S corp or a C corp, depending on what your situation is and whether you have, um, whether we could possibly get a lot of tax-free reimbursements out of a C corp, you know, some to play that, that you look at. And then eventually look at isolating them once they mature, because we don't want to contaminate them from you know each other. But what's the most important thing, and this is just the asset protection attorney sitting in me, is isolate it from you. Make sure that, hey, I do a party rental, somebody the chair breaks and somebody has spinal injury, that you're not looking at it, something that's going to impact you for the rest of your life as somebody comes after you with judgments or, or things like that. Or if you do an online sale and somebody has products liability of some sort or something that you created and they say you got them sick or whatever, you know, just fill in your blank, remodeling, you know, hey, I, I was working and I did, and I forgot to put some glue on a pipe and it and it flooded out the whole house. I've, I've actually seen that. And it, the damage was over one and a half million and you know you got a three hundred thousand dollar policy you're, you're looking at some serious liability and it's personal so we want to isolate that for sure put it in its own box keep it separate all right the difference between investor and de developer products protects purposes protects pr I, don't, I really don't know what that means i love questions like this because it's not a question it was just a statement <laughs> but I saw it and I was like, well, this will give us a chance to talk about the difference between what an investor is and a developer is, because for at least purposes of the passive activity loss rules and real estate professional status, an investor is a passive activity and a developer is a trader business. So if you are a developer and you are doing things to develop properties personally, that can be it. That is a trader business. And that means that it's ordinary income. You can be looking at self employment tax, but more importantly, you could qualify as a real estate professional and unlock all of your passive activity losses to offset all your other income. Like it could wipe out a good chunk of your W-2. It could wipe out other income that you have coming in from another business. It can really do great things for you. So I wanted to point that out, that when you say, what's you know the difference between an investor and a, and a developer? Well, okay, there, there are two. I would still isolate them for asset protection purposes, even from each other. Because a developer sounds like you're doing something on property before you sell it or you're working with third parties. An investor is somebody who's buying things for kind of the long haul. Generally, an investor in real estate is somebody who's selecting the property and somebody else is managing it. Those are two very different activities. You'd isolate them so that they don't contaminate each other. Even on the investor side, the real estate, you know us, we're going to say the same thing over and over again here at Anderson, which is isolate risk assets. And if you're just starting out, isolate each one because the loss of one, you know, the loss of the whole, like you had three properties, the loss of two of the three or three of the three could be absolutely devastating. If you have 30 properties, you could be isolating it in groups of five for all I care, 10, because if you lose 10, you still got 20, you're not going to care. Like it's going to be hurtful, but it's not going to be catastrophic. Whereas you're just getting started and you, and you put all your properties in one LLC, for example, and you lose them all. That's pretty devastating. Next one, do I have to open a 401k by the end of the year to make contributions? Really good question. Here's the thing. It used to be that you had to. Now, 
you have to have a 401k open if you're going to make employee deferral contributions. So like if you're going to defer your salary, you have to have that salary run before the end of the year. But the employer contributions, the 25% contributions, for example, of a solo 401k, you could actually set up the 401k after the end of the year and you could make those contributions all the way up until the business files its taxes, which could be September of next year if it's like an S-corp. So do I have to open a 401k by the end of the year to make contributions? If it's your deferral, the answer is yes. If it's the employer that wants to make a, a match uh, towards you know 25% of your wages up to the 60 some thousand dollars, 62,000, it's then no, you can actually do that after the after the year starts. My CPA has suggested I take late election of a S corp C-Corp was formed in of June of 22. So this is interesting. I've had plenty of expenses building the foundation of a wholesaling business, but no deals yet. So it sounds like there's a business that was incorporated in June. So here we are six months later, and they're saying, hey, we should take this as an S-Corp, but no deals yet. With tax filing, I assume I do a late election of an S-Corp. Will my taxes be filed as an S-Corp or as a C-Corp? And how does that impact the business startup expenses I've had since March of 2022? So there's a couple of big questions here. Whenever we look at a flow-through entity, they always kind of look at you. So if you make the uh, the late S election, which, which generally speaking, you can. I know that some people are, hey, what is this thing? It's, I did not make an S election, and, I'm, and there's a rev, revenue procedure where you can file an S-corp return and say, hey, I to excusable neglect or something along those lines that I did not make the election in time, but I've treated it as an S-corp and I'm filing my taxes as an S-corp. Uh, and I assume that they're doing that, the CPA is doing that because they, they want to take losses because they want to take these expenses. And so the, the trader business that you set up, but you haven't had any deals yet, the IRS could take a position that you're not in business yet. They've done it in the past. There's a, actually a court case on where some, somebody was not entitled to their expenses until they actually did a deal. And once they did the deal, then they could write off the expenses. And they had written off the expenses in a tax year. Let's just pretend like it's that it was you know 2021, but they didn't do any deals until 2022. And the, and the IRS said, hey, you owe taxes in that year. We're not going to allow you to take those losses. I think it was the Woodward case. But anyway, so you could do that. And you're still entitled under either case that you have these startup expenses. Generally speaking, my suggestion is that C-Corps are a trader business the day that they're started. And it's a lot less of, hey, I'm messing around with this thing than I have my first deal. And you're not trying to take the loss, right? The loss is staying in the C-Corp. The IRS is much more forgiving of that then, hey, I took it and I wiped out some of my W-2 income, especially if you're in a higher tax bracket. So just food for thought, is the business started if you have done no deals? There's a good argument that you have because wholesaling, you're probably doing a bunch of mailing out and everything else. You could say, hey, the day that I started doing that is the day that I started this business, in which case that if you had losses, yeah, you could absolutely take it. Otherwise, which I think is a great argument, I don't know how the IRS would would, would form on it. Otherwise, it, it's grabbing the C-Corp and you still grab all those expenses as startup expenses. 
or as 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 business losses because if you haven't made any income and you've been incurring expenses you're gonna have losses either way i think you're going to be you know probably in a similar situation so i don't know if it really matters but you have a good cpa they're looking at it and they are aware of the ability to make a late election and they're probably thinking on your behalf and uh, i don't get in between people and their good cpas i just say listen to the cpa you may just want to say hey is there any issue that they could think of about when they started that business they'd probably say no it's the date you had shareholders and it's the date you started your business in a corporation that's generally the case and you could say well it, you know just kind of do the math and say is this something that i need to take right now or hey maybe we just wait till next year or maybe we wait until after the first tax year and then we make an s election another year uh, it all depends on what you're doing my experience with wholesaling is that if, if you're putting the energy into it it'll start to pay off pretty quick and you're going to use up those losses anyway how can i make sure our utah-based kids pay minimal tax on the sale of our property in california when we die we know it will be stepped up in value when i sold my own dad's property in california when he died recently we paid a big tax on it to california's non-residents should we sell it and do a 10 or a 1099 exchange they're probably thinking of a 1031 exchange before that i lived in a condo for nine years and bought a house last year with five percent down payment the condo was running out if i sell it now well, I have to make it. Oh, hold on for a second. This is probably looks like it's two two separate questions that are mixed into one. So let's let's answer the first one. So I'm just going to put a line through this guy. Here's the deal. I'm not certain about Utah, but I am certain that it's really odd because California doesn't have an inheritance tax. Period, and they they haven't had one since the 80s. So I'm trying to think of how they taxed you when your dad passed. There was a step up in value so i'm trying to think of what you paid on the big tax hit my my thought is you must have been in a state that has a an estate tax and i know there's 12 and i i know most of them maybe you lived in a state that had an estate tax and because you live there the state incurred you know charged you the estate tax because california sure as heck wouldn't <laughs> so i'm trying to figure out where the tax came from it's very curious but premise here is wow I mean like I just don't see it I'll tell you something that actually did occur with somebody who came up actually to me today and told me about this they quick claimed a property their parents did to the kids because they were concerned about taxes when they passed away and what they did is they ensured that their kids would pay a tax when they passed away because if they had done nothing there would have been no tax because you have a step up in basis and they were well below the federal exclusion and the state exclusions of federal estate taxes, which are over right now, it's $12 million plus per individual over 24 million as, as a married couple. And then there's states like Oregon and Massachusetts, I think their their state tax exclusion is down, like Oregon's a million. I think that's, I think they're the only ones along with Massachusetts. I think Massachusetts is pretty low too, but most states, the vast majority like as in like almost 40 of the states follow the federal so like there there would be no tax so again i'm trying to figure this out the 1031 exchange or i think what they're saying is a 1099 is maybe we could sell it not have any tax and keep the basis low maybe you could sell it to the kids maybe that's what you're thinking but again you're recognizing tax that you wouldn't otherwise have to 
So I'm a little bit confused. I don't understand why you got hit. I would love to see it. If you're out there, send that in to tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com and maybe I'll do a follow-up on it because it doesn't make much sense to me unless there was, uh, I can't think of anything, of what, would, what would cause somebody who passed away for you to have a tax hit when you sold the property because you had a step a step up in basis. Just There's just something that's weird there. Unless your state has an estate tax, in which case you got hit with that, which means you know just, just your kids shouldn't live in a state that has an estate tax if they're concerned about this. Here's one. And then the second question is, I lived in a condo for nine years and bought a house last year with the 10 or 5% down payment. The condo was rented out. If I sell it now, will I have to pay capital gains tax? If so, how can I avoid paying capital gains tax? So this is actually a really good question and pretty straightforward. So you live in a condo for nine years and then you move out. The rule that exists that allows you to avoid capital gains on the sale of a primary residence is section 121. So it's 26 USC 121. And it says that if you lived in a property as your primary residence for two of the last five years, that if you're single, you get a $250,000 capital gain exclusion. If you are married, you get a $500,000 capital gain exclusion. So in here, you moved out of a property and it sounds like last year. So you would just sell it within three years. So three years of moving out. So once you left, now you have a you have a five year look back, all right. In the last five years, did I live in that property for at least twenty four months? The answer is going to be yes, all the way until you get to month thirty seven uh, of where you're renting it out. So just make sure you sell it before it's three years gone, and uh, you don't have any. You don't have to worry about it. You would have no capital gains, or the capital gains would be offset with the one twenty one exclusion, which is pretty potent stuff. So if, the, if you're single, you're going to avoid 250000 Now, let's assume, just because I'm being annoying, that the gain is actually more than 250000 and you're you're single. And you still don't want to pay tax. And you're like, gosh, darn it, Toby, how do I do this? You could actually put a 121 exclusion together with a 1031 exchange. So what would happen is, let's say that your house went up a million bucks and you have a $250,000 exchange and you want to avoid it. Once you rent it out, it becomes investment property. So let's say that you sell it and you do a 1031 exchange and buy more real estate. You would get the 121 exclusion to its full extent, and then you would 1031 the rest. And what it does is it adjusts your basis up from not only your sales price or the, the purchase price when you bought it, but then you add the 250 exclusion on top of it. If you're married, it's 500000 and then you're avoiding tax and depreciation recapture because you've been renting it out. You're going to have recapture on the depreciation, whether you took it or not, believe it or not. You're required to, if you could have taken depreciation, and that is not part of 121 exclusion. A 121 exclusion avoids capital gains and capital gains only. So a 1031 exchange avoids capital gains and recapture, just moves the basis on over to another property. So what does that mean for you in English? It means if you have lots and lots of gain and you're you're exceeding the 121 exclusion, the, the way you're doing it right now is I made it into a rental. Great. Sell it under a 1031 exchange and get both the advantage under 121 and get to uh, avoid capital gains and recapture. All right. Looking for the best ways to protect not profits. I've seen 401k contributions, IRA contributions, investment in materials, equipment. 
owner distributions, which will not protect your net profit, bonus, et cetera, bonus would. We are uncertain of future events. We would like to keep what we've earned without paying it all to the government. So it sounds like it's some sort of either a business or you're incurring some sort of capital gains. Maybe you're selling stock or whatnot. Maybe it's real estate. So what first off is to determine exactly what the taxable event is. If it's net profit from the business and you're saying, boy, I'm, I'm getting hit with it. You're, yeah, you use all the business expenses. You may also want to look at, are there ways to get money back out to myself in a tax-free manner? So you're looking at reimbursing the heck at a, with an accountable plan out of anything that you're incurring personally that is benefiting that business. So the administrative office for the home, the 280A, uh, your cell phone, your data, good chunk of the expenses of your home, depending on whether you have a, a home office or an administrative office in the home. Owner distributions aren't going to do it. It's going to be salaries, and you're going to pay tax on that unless you defer it in your 401k. If you don't defer it into your 401k, you could even, theoretically, if you have a 401k like we set up and it allows in-service distributions, you could actually get that into a Roth. But you're much happier paying the tax if you know you're never going to pay tax ever again. Uh, other things you could do is take advantage of all the deductions that aren't nailed down. So you might be looking at an HSA which is always great, a defined benefit plan. If, if you have profits and you have owner distributions, a, de a defined benefit plan is a fancy way of saying, let's figure out how much you're making and make sure you get to keep, you're, you're receiving that from your, your retirement plan. So we have folks putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into there and deferring it. You could also take advantage of things like real estate. You're already sitting equipment, but Maybe you're looking at real estate, self-rental of real estate, so you don't have to worry whether you can group that with your business, and you could take uh, large amounts of depreciation, accelerate that depreciation, and avoid tax on your business. Yes, you can group the business and a passive activity together and treat it as it makes the makes it basically non-passive, but treats it as one economic unit. Other things you could do is look at getting charitable with your own charity. You could do conservation easements. You can do a lot of different things. You can even do captive insurance. If you say, hey, you know what? I want to make sure that I'm getting huge deductions now and then I'm capping how much I'm going to pay tax on it. You can cap it at long-term capital gains in the future. There's just so many things out there that you could be doing. So I'm just throwing a few out at you. Uh, and it really just depends on what type of business you have, whether you're trying to show profit for either angel investors, bank purposes or whatever. And we're just, we're because sometimes you just make the business a C-corp and pay a flat 21% take out uh, bonuses and, and and salaries when you need it, pay tax on those. And, and if you have a whole bunch of profit left over, make sure you have a reason for it. And if you don't, make sure you're giving yourself a dividend and dividends are taxed as long-term capital gains in this type of situation. So depending on what your income is, it could be 0% that you're paying on those, 15% that you're paying on those. I doubt I'd ever issue a dividend if I was paying 20%, but I think I threw some ideas out out there for you. If I'm using a private lender to buy a property and borrow $10,000 more than my purchase price, is the additional $10,000 taxed as income? The answer is no. You can always borrow money and it's not taxable to you. You just have to be at risk for it. So you're not in a syndication where you have nothing to do with the loan and you know it's excessive basis. So this is just you borrowing money from somebody. Yeah, no, I just all, all, all you're doing when you're borrowing money is, is hey, I owe money to somebody. And it's secured with something that I own. Sometimes it's real estate. Sometimes if it's equipment, it could even be shares. It could be income streams. It could be artwork. It could be a just bunch. Of, it could be your car. 
anything like that. But that's besides the point. Loan proceeds aren't taxable. So if you're using a private lender and you borrow more money because you're probably going to rehab it or something, or they just think it's a great property and maybe bought it right, I wouldn't worry about it. It's not taxable. This year, we made a little more money and wanted to know if your service will help us off uh, offset anything with my somewhat new business before the end of the year over. I currently have a massage esthetician business that I opened in October 2018. Then the pandemic hit in March of 2019, in which my state licensing demanded we stop all services or we'd get our license taken away, causing me to go in the red for 2019, 2020, and 2021. So it sounds like the pandemic caused you to lose money. Hopefully you're using the employee uh, retention credit. Hopefully there's some payroll there or something there that you can get some money back. Maybe maybe you got some of that uh, that money there. Uh, moving forward, my business has been slowly coming back, but still struggling during the pandemic. I went back to school, getting certified to work in the holistic healthcare setting. And I'm in the process of adding that business to my existing. So I wanted to get advice on the best way to set things up if I had multiple businesses. So. First and foremost, let me just get this. So I have a massage esthetician. And the question is, if you were making that business better by going to school on the holistic healthcare. And so was it a whole new other business, in which case like education expenses and costs and things like that are not deductible? Or was it bettering the existing business? And is that why you're going there? That's a question I cannot answer for you. It's a question that you would probably, you know, you could obviously make arguments. I don't know how the IRS would look at it. They may take the position, hey, this is a whole other line of business. If that's the case, a lot of those expenses, I mean, they're gonna, it's not going to be something you're going to be able to grab unless you could grab it as a, as a startup expense. But again, it sounds like you were getting certified for a new line of business, which case it wouldn't be deductible. It doesn't mean that there aren't expenses there that could be a startup expense that you might be able to take advantage of. If you combine these two businesses, you know, I, I remember my first question to, uh, today was really about whether when when we bring businesses together and how we bring them together, you could absolutely have two lines of business in one business. I would make sure that they're isolated away from you. It sounds like there's been some losses. So that makes me think that we want to flow through structure either disregarded or depending on the licensing, you may even have requirements as to what type of entity you can be. Maybe it's an S, maybe it's not, maybe it's just an LLC and it's disregarded to you and you want to take those losses. If you're going to be making money and you know you're making good money at this, then you probably want to be looking at an escort. The numbers usually really start to turn around $25,000 a year of net profit. At that number, you're probably around $1,500 net savings. If you go to an S-Corp, there's a little bit of cost, maybe depending on who the accountant is, because the numbers are pretty much identical, but maybe they're doing an extra tax return in their mind instead of just a Schedule C for a 1040. So maybe there's a little extra cost there, but the bookkeeping is going to be the same. And you might have a salary requirement, which might cost you doing payroll once a year for a couple hundred bucks. So when it's all said and done, you're going to come out pretty well ahead or pretty darn close, right around 25 thousand dollars so you know it really depends on that business as to how big it is but i really would look at your licensing to make sure that they allow this in the first place because there may be requirements depending on who your board is to say that you can't have two types of businesses combined or you can't be in this type of business and this type of business there might be rules that prevent that so you want to make sure that you're not doing something 
that would offend a local rule that depending on your state, possibly your county. But from a structuring standpoint, I would say, hey, the, the two businesses, something bad happens at a massage or doing a holistic uh, healthcare, and somebody sues you. Let's just say it's, hey, I had a, a contract who decides that really they were an employee and then you discriminated against them and then you wrongfully discharged them and they sue you for $500,000. Both businesses get brought in unless you keep them separate. And when you, by keeping them separate and separate entities, so that's generally the way you do it. So um, I have enough to be dangerous off of this, but I would say it, it's worth a, a further exploration. My husband and I are wanting to take advantage of the equity in our home and would like to invest into some rental properties to start to dabble in real estate investing in Airbnb. So I also wanted to know if your company will be there for us on any financial advising and legal advising and our planning in this new venture. This is exactly what we do. So for example, you say real estate investing in a Air- Airbnb. So there's rental properties and there's Airbnb. And sometimes you want to those to be treated similarly because Airbnb almost always is a trader business. It's not a rental activity. And sometimes you need to have those properties treated as a rental activity if you're going for something like real estate professional status. Otherwise, sometimes you want the Airbnb to be isolated on its own because you want to create big fat losses that can offset your W-2 income because Airbnb is a trader business. You want to make sure that, that you're not poisoning that well and that you're able to take all those losses. So yeah, there's absolutely issues that, that come here and it's all real estate, which means property A affects property B affects property C. We probably want to isolate A, B, and C from each other. And we want a structure that allows us to get the maximum tax benefits in isolating that liability. And if A and B are rental activities and C is Airbnb, then the question is, do we want to add D to be the Airbnb and let C be a rental because we need A, B, and C to qualify for real estate professional? Or can C just be its own activity as a trader business and we don't isolate out the real estate in it and you meet the material or participation test and you can create some pretty fantastic losses? All those are things that get explored in, in, a, in a consultation. And I would encourage you to actually take advantage of a consultation. All right. We are dabbling in is Turo. So something that they're, it sounds like they're dabbling in Turo. Uh, guys, I usually just grab these and throw these right on in. I'm not one for sitting here messing around with it. It's like Airbnb for your personal car. So I'm familiar with Turo. So far, it's been doing well, and we're interested in expanding it with more cars to add in. However, we now would like any new cars we added to be purchased under the business name. Most likely, you're going to have to anyway. You should be letting your insurance know because insurance won't cover Turo. So Turo has separate uh, insurance, but you could find yourself in a situation where your insurance says sayonara. So you want to make sure that they know what you're doing here. It's really easy if you start using them just solely for business and you buy them in the business name. Now, depending on the type of car, it could be deductible in one year. It could be deductible over five years, and there might be limitations on how much per year you can actually deduct. So like most passenger vehicles, it's around $19,000. And I mean, that's kind of problematic, right? Because if it's an expensive car, you're like, I really would like to write off more, but you might be limited. So um, yes, you can absolutely isolate them. And you're going to want someone to get a pad of paper and pencil and, and kind of figure this thing out. 
if you're using them for your business and in something like a corporation, I would much prefer that because if you're doing this in your name, you're exposed. You have a ton of exposure. I mean, just imagine somebody comes into town and they say, uh, hey, you denied them access to your vehicle and they allege it was some insidious reason. It was race-based or something like that, or because they had a name you didn't like or a disability or something, or they were too old, whatever. Like You start just filling in certain blanks and seeing whether you open yourself up to any potential exposure. You want to make sure that we're isolating these activities out there because you don't want, like you want to minimize that coming into your personal realm as, as much as humanly possible. So we want to have a business name on it. Plus, if you start doing this in mass, a bunch of people are going to be driving your cars. And the more people that are driving your cars, the more likely that your car is going to be involved in something. So you want to make sure it's your name's not in that. You want to just keep it separate. Here's the business. This is the vehicle provider. This is the, I don't know what they call it, like a Turo host. And I know that, again, Turo has its insurance. Make sure you have yours. Make sure they know it's commercial so you can get commercial insurance. And then make sure you get an umbrella. So we just knocked out a whole bunch. And there's end of year stuff, too, that I'll just throw out there. Make sure you're looking at your realized capital gains and looking at your unrealized capital gains and using maybe it's time to harvest some of those unrealized losses to avoid tax on the capital gains. Also look at things like crypto that have had a really bad year. And with crypto, you can take the loss, you can sell it and take the loss and then immediately buy it back and you don't lose the loss. Even in, uh, it's called the wash sale rule that that affects securities. Even in securities, there's a way, there's a workaround with buying a, an option immediately after selling to cover that, what the rule covers, which is just to attach the next purchase and and add the loss into that basis. So uh, you could do that with an option and then buy that buy the shares secondarily again, and then sell the option and grab a much bigger loss. And it, it it's still capital loss. So if you wanted to harvest some of that, you certainly could do it. There's other things that are really important, like if you have an S-corp taking a salary before the end of the year. If you have expenses, just know that there's no such thing as miscellaneous itemized expenses since the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So make sure you're reimbursing. Um, if you have a uh, 401k, make sure you're doing the, the employee contributions. If you're going to use a DB plan, make sure it's in, in, in service before the end of the year. If you're going to make charitable donations, make sure that those are written. If it's a check by December 31st, the contribution has to be made before the end of the year. There's like little things like that. Just be aware of a lot of stuff you can punt on, like IRA and the employer side of the 401k, the employer contributions in a DB. Uh, doing a cost sag on a property, you can wait until next year. You can actually do it all the way up until you file the tax return to make a change of accounting and take advantage of a cost seg on a property. There's a lot of things that are not time critical, but the big ones are salaries, reimbursements, charitable giving. If you have some bills or some some things that you can prepay because you need to wipe off some, like you've had a really good year and you're, you have some money, let's say you had $10,000 falling into the highest tax bracket, you have a lot of incentive to, to, to look at equipment purchases that may be coming up and doing them now. You may, you may have incentive to to pay some bills that are going to be in the near future and and cover them now. So that's lowering it. Maybe you're making uh, two or three years of charitable giving and this year, and then you take a couple of years off so that you can offset more income. There's lots of things like that at the end of the year. 
that are worth it. Speaking of end of the year, there's the link if you want to come to my uh, YouTube page. Let me see if I can make that thing flash. Hey, look, it flashed. Yeah, we are coming towards the end of the year. And there's other tax strategies. I put them up in the YouTube channel. I think I did a one that was 14 year end strategies, things like that. Also, if you're a client, and especially if you have the tax toolbox, you did the business essentials package, I encourage you. I redid, I did 45 tax strategies in one day and we recorded it. It was the TaxWise workshop and it should be sitting in there in, 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 right, right now, uh, freshly uploaded, sitting there in your tax toolbox. So make sure you take advantage of that too. Uh, and that you are looking at that information to get as much tax knowledge. I go everything from cost segregation to conservation easements, 121, 168, 1031s, tons of different types of deductions, income shifting, hiring your kids, paying those kids before the end of the year by, you know, for example, make sure that that stuff's done. But there's a ton in there, along with, uh, you know, a, a lot of the philosophy that we see from our having worked with so many clients of what actually works for wealth building. So feel free to go to the YouTube channel. It's absolutely free. And there's lots of good ideas and subscribe. And by the way, if, if you like this type of information, if you get something out of these Tax Tuesdays, please share it with others. We love the more the merrier is like an easy saying, but, but we actually love working with people. We love the, the emails. Speaking of the emails, email us at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com. Any questions you got, just shoot them on over that are tax related, right? I don't want to hear a bunch of other weird stuff so sometimes people go over there and they'll just pontificate political stuff please don't send it to me right we want the we want tax questions and uh visit us at anderson advisors if you haven't been to our tax and asset protection workshop make sure you do it's free we do it at least once a month and uh it's it, it's a hoot you're gonna learn about land trust living trust LLCs, corporations, S and C, and real estate investing and real estate taxation and a bunch of the nuances. By all means, please join us. Uh, we do them again at least once a month, and they're pretty educational. And they're a lot of fun, and there's there's always a bunch of attorneys on there answering questions and accountants and other people that we bring a lot of staff in there because we we usually have you know somewhere in the thousand range watching live and. It's a pretty good sized group and they're it's it's lively so it keeps us moving along so by all means jump into that i knew it threw a lot at yeah at you and this is one of those things i and i tell this when i teach at advanced classes you're really looking for three things when you're doing some of the more advanced courses or don't try to remember everything just try to pick three things that you can apply now you know and just say like when i say now the next 90 days so with all things as you get to the end of the year you're starting to think about next year and you start thinking about the first quarter think what three things could i use that are, that are going to make me a more effective business owner a more effective tax planner how can i positively impact my situation maybe i'm deferring taxes longer maybe i'm getting more deductions so i'm keeping more of the money that i make whatever the case just look for three things and then do it again. So like every every quarter, maybe you just make that your goal. Hey, I want to learn three things that I can actually implement and apply. Do that quarterly. And after two years, you're going to be pretty potent. All right, guys. I hope that this was a little bit enlightening and that you got something out of it. And uh, again, hopefully if you had questions, somebody was able to answer them. If not, email us with the Tax Tuesday Anderson Advisors and we'll get to it as quickly as we can. 
Have a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful New Year with the ones that you care about. Uh, whatever you may be celebrating, have a wonderful holiday season. And if you're not celebrating much or it's it's been a rough one, just know that 2023 is right around the corner and that I'm hoping and praying that you have a fantastic new year and that if you have had a tough 2022, just remember you're going to kick butt in 2023. Keep telling yourself that. Guys, have a great one. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 